Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. This is a podcast connecting people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Since 2017, we've shared the stories of over 100 individuals from every walk of life from across the country and beyond. Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio partners with nonprofits, creatives, and other organizations to spread the good news that we're all stronger together. Our current partner is the Esteem Awards Pride Index, founded by Philistine. The Esteem Awards is a 501c3 organization dedicated to promoting positive images of the LGBTQ community. Since 2007, the Esteem Awards has honored over 300 local and national organizations and individuals for their continued efforts in supporting the areas of entertainment, media, civil rights, social services, businesses, and the arts. Our guest today on Collections by Michelle Brown is Jay Kaplan. Jay has been the staff attorney for the ACLU of Michigan's LGBTQ project since its founding in 2001. He has worked on cases including challenging undercover sting operations, targeting gay men, fighting Michigan's constitutional amendment prohibiting same-sex couples from marrying, defending the validity of second parent adoptions granted in Michigan, and advocating for transgender high school students to be able to run for prom court. Jay is also very creative. He acts and sings. He recently made his directorial debut with a production of Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun. Jay, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing great, and thank you. I feel honored that you asked me to be part of your your podcast. So it's a pleasure to be here. You know, you and I have, have been talking before we got going about how we met, and it does, it seems like we have known each other like forever, in mm-hmm. part because of movement work. And I'm yeah. thinking, you know, you, we, you had thought that we had met at the Office of Between the Lines in Livonia, and I'm wondering if it had to do with the early, or was it Prop 2 for marriage equality? But I, you know, I just, and I remember that, and there was another thing, the Peninsula Group, where we met at ACLU. And I mean, and every step of the way in the fight, you've been there. Thank you. Yeah, and, and of course, you've been always there, too. And I, and I think you're right. I think it was back in, what, 2004? With uh, the, the the constitutional uh, amendment that would you know prohibited same-sex couples from being able to get married, and I think we were meeting and talking about strategies and how we could fight back against that. You know, so much has happened. I mean, if you stop and you think about from 2004, I remember being a part of uh, trying to anti-bullying um, movement of trying to amend Elliot Larson, and guess what? <laughs> All of those things that we fought for have sort of come to fruition. Yeah, yeah. With, with, you know, when they, they brought you on as part of the ACLU of Michigan's LGBTQ project, 
did you even begin to think that one day we'd, we'd be here? Well, you know, it's so interesting, Michelle, when, when we first started the project, there's a national ACLU LGBT rights project. And I remember the then director of that project said, well, Jay, you know, Michigan's a lost state. Look at your mm. legislature. Look at your governor. Look at your court. Um, look what, you know, look what's happening in local communities. You're, you, you, you can't expect anything really in terms of proactive or moving forward on LGBTQ rights in your state. And, you know, at that time, he, he, was, he was spot on because those were all the challenges that were going on in our state. But, yes, when you, when you think of all the progress that has been made and how Michigan went from being considered to be a lost state to now kind of being viewed as, as, as one of the uh, leaders in terms of LGBTQ rights, you know, the fact for the first time in 40 years, we have a progressive majority legislature. We have a governor, secretary of state, and attorney general who are all LGBTQ friendly. We have a progressive majority on Michigan Supreme Court. And we're, we're in a position where we're able to do good things, whereas years before we were always trying to fight and to prevent the bad stuff from becoming laws. And sometimes we were successful and other times we weren't. You know, and it's funny, I mean, if you stop and you, I mean, I can recall times, I mean, it was so hard. I mean, everything, you know, and, and every step of the way, you know, the ACLU, you, and I remember Carrie Moss, I mean, you guys were there with us. I mean, mm-hmm. every time that we went to it or it came time and the news or the media would go to, and it was like you brought a really thoughtful analysis to what was going on at the time. And, you know, a lot of the stuff people go like, oh, well, we got it, but we wouldn't be where we were now without planting those seeds of what was social justice and what what equality really mattered to you, to people. Sure. sure. And I, I think the ACLU as a not an LGBTQ-specific organization, and because Part of our mission is to focus on the civil liberties and constitutional rights of all people. We we had a we had a, we we were lucky we've had a special role to play, and um, and you know to be to be to be an ally to the LGBTQ community and the organizations that were that were and have been fighting this fight. And um, I think we've been really lucky to to have certainly to have that partnership. With, with, with the community itself and that, they, that they've looked to the ACLU and through this project um, to, kind of, to kind of be able to answer questions regarding what does the law say, how does this impact LGBTQ people? And uh, it's, it's a role that we, you know, that we, and a responsibility that we don't take lightly and, um, you know, still 22 years later, very much committed to, to um, you know, uh, to the community itself and the work that still remains to be done. Wow, 22 years. Isn't that something when you stop and you think like 22 years? <laughs> Some of these, these young people who are doing things, I mean, they were just being born, you know? I, I mean, know. I know. But um, what, what gives you, you know, I know you're still there. You're still committed to do it. What gives you that energy? I mean, I tell you, I know so many in our community who got burned out, who got tired, 
who, you know, left. But you're still here fighting the good fight, only it's easier, a little easier now. Do you see a young Jay Kaplan coming up in the ranks that that you've worked with? Oh, I think there's a lot of younger members of our LGBTQ community who are are playing leadership roles or will be ready to play leadership roles. I'm I'm very excited, um, uh, you know, in terms with the with the younger generation and the passion and um, the enthusiasm that they bring to this work. So no doubt in my mind uh, that you know that the that the next generation is not you know. Not only can they carry on the torch, they they are doing that. So that's very exciting. And I think any in any civil rights movement, Michelle, you probably you you probably know this as well, um, is that um, for all the progress you make, there's always some form of pushback. And you're asking what keeps me energized is because yes, we've had incredible progress on marriage equality, on you know some policy changes, and on some civil rights protections. And yet we're seeing this unprecedented attack, you know, in other states and even at the local level in, in you know, in our state against uh, particularly transgender people, transgender youth. And, um, you know, that just tells me the work's not done. And um, we can be proud of what we've accomplished, but there's still a lot more that, that needs to be done. And, and um, you know, we, we have to speak out and we have to challenge these attempts to to allow for discrimination against LGBTQ people when people try to, you know, say I'm doing so because of my religious belief or because it's my First Amendment right to, you know, to be able to do so. So there's still a lot more work to be done. And I think that it, it, it you know, it, it continues to energize me because there's, there's more things to fight back against. Mm. You know, one of the things that, you know, that I often think of and um, it was interesting, was it last, last year, actually I was in Princeton, and um, I was talking to some young people. And part of the reason why I went there, not only because it had a social justice thing, but I went there because I, was, I told them about some poetry that I'd done and stuff. And, and one of the young women said, you know, do you really think that, you know, the arts and poetry, I mean, do you think that can help? And I was, I was thought of it, and I said, you know what, in every social movement, some of the people who have been at the vanguard have been the artists, the creatives, the poets, the writers. And it also, like for me, it gives me balance. I know, which, which just tickles me to no end, that you have that creative side. Do you find uh, that gives you balance? I, I do, and then thank you for saying that. I, I think to to be able to express yourself in other ways, and it's just you know you're talking about some people who get burned down, and you know sometimes I I feel that way too. It's so important to have that work life balance, and um, you know civil rights work. Anytime you're 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 trying to achieve um, equality, for, you know for, for for you and for your community, um, sometimes you know, what the opposition say and sometimes the tactics that they take and sometimes the things that happen, it can be incredibly upsetting and incredibly discouraging. So it's important to have another way, an outlet to be able to express yourself. And, um, you know, whether that one wants to take up painting or writing or, you know, whatever, 
you know, it feeds your soul. I think it's important to, to, to be able to, to have that as well. And I feel like I've been very fortunate, um, you know, that I've been able to participate you know, in performing arts, um, you know, strictly amateur stuff, but um, it's, been, it's been a great outlet for myself, and it, it helps fill my soul. So when did you get the book? I mean, you know, did you did you perform in high school and college, or was this did you did you you reach out to this and grasp it later in life? Actually, even before high school and college, wow. I, even as a kid in elementary school, I was you know for the most part a very shy kid, and um, it was you know I felt awkward in a lot of social situations. I felt kind of intimidated, maybe speaking up in class, and I found that you know. Maybe if I was able to get up and sing a song or be part of a play, be somebody else besides myself, uh, it was a way to express myself. And I think it also helped me get a little measure of self-confidence, you know, in terms of to be able to to to, to speak as, as Jay. Mm. Mm. Wow. I can, I'm not, you know, I'm seeing you now up there on stage, you know, <laughs> as a young Jay doing a, a, a play and stuff. Wow. You know, and I, I so understand that, too, because it's something like you can, sometimes people will say, well, how can you do that? It's so like you, you sort of put yourself into the character. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. they're living. Right, and right. You know, and I, I, that level of concentration, and also for me, you know, the reaction from an audience or that connection with the audience, that's, that's very special too. But theater has always been a great interest and an important part of my life. I've always enjoyed it. I've always been inspired, you know, by, by, by things that I saw on stage. And um, it, you know, it, it helps continue that drive because I, I think the arts can help make a better world and certainly working in the civil rights movement for our community, also the goal is to try to make a better world. Yeah. I mean, so many artists, I mean, who I have talked to, who I've met, who I've heard, they have often said, you know, that they were that, that they were that kid who was a little shy and also bit, but they found themselves on the stage and they were able to release that other part. Did you ever think of, I mean, you went into law, I mean, which I know probably made your mother real happy because I can, I can imagine she said, I want to be an, I want to be an actor. It was like, oh God, get a job. Oh yeah. That, that was never, that was never a, even a, considered to even be a, a, a possibility, even at a very young age. But you're right. My, my parents did want me to go to law school. And, you know, I remember my first year, I really struggled because law school is not like what we see on television. It's, it's a lot of reading. It's a lot of, you know, writing and analyzing. And some of the, you know, the initial year, first year, it's, it's, it's the basic subjects. And it can be kind of dry and it kind of just feels, it's hard to connect people to, to a lot of those concepts. So I struggled to find my niche, you know, in terms of, uh, what I wanted to do in law, and then that first summer, I volunteered. Uh, they used to have a program called the Landlord Tenant Clinic. It was in Detroit. It was one run by uh, Wayne County Neighborhood Legal, one of the legal services programs. And um, I got to work with indigent tenants and help them. You know, they had eviction cases, 
And when you're a law student, if you're sponsored by an attorney, you're, you were able to go into court and to argue their defenses uh, for them in court. And I, I remember that first time I got to go into 36 district court. So anybody, if anybody's ever been in a landlord-tenant court, you know how crazy, how crazy <laughs> that is. You have 100 cases going up, and it's just it's, it's a real circus. But that excitement, being able, you know, to, to be there, to be in court, and to help somebody out. You might have been to get them some more time to stay in their place or maybe to get the repairs that they needed or, you know, to raise whatever defenses. That seems very, very rewarding. And I knew that then that whatever I did with my law degree, I wanted to be able to help people. I wanted to use the law to help people. Mm. Did you ever, like, have fantasies of being, like, you know, where is it? I'm trying to think. The one, some like some of the lawyers that you see on TV, you know, going in there and passionately, you know, pleading, making that great closing statement that you know just just changed the world. Oh sure, I sure, and it's that. <laughs> I, what I think it was maybe once again that was that first summer after the first year of law school, I was doing a close some closing statement on behalf of the tenant, and I I. I remember I used some very dramatic and probably a little flowerly language. And I remember the judge sitting on the bench was, he's kind of cracking up, you know, it's <laughs> to me. Uh, and, I, and I think there's a perception that most lawyers, um, that they are in court all the time. And, you know, other than my work doing the, you know, representing tenants in eviction court, I never have gone into court very often. I'm, I'm not what you'd consider to be a litigator. Many lawyers, it's a lot of reading and writing and uh, trying to figure out, you know, in terms of what does the law say here and what can we do to advocate. You know, with the ACLU, we have to look very carefully about the cases that we take. Is it going to have an impact? Will it make a difference on many people's lives? And, of course, when you have limited resources, we can't take everything. Um, but, that, you know, that first job, it, it was like, it, it, to me, in my head, it was like, oh, wow, it's just like on television. <laughs> <laughs> that was glamorous, but it felt like on television. <laughs> yes, I did my first case here. <laughs> but, oh, wow. I was walking out after that first case, Michelle, I think it might have been raining or something. I was walking in my car. I didn't care. I was just like on cloud nine. Oh, my God, I got, you know, to go in front of a judge, and I got to argue a case in court, you know, and hope, and I got to help somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, I love that. I mean, and you know what? Knowing you, I can see you doing that. You know, I can see you walking out and doing that. I can also see you in landlord, tenant, tenant court, because, you know, sometimes, you know, it's like it's a family. And sometimes there are reasons why, and there are, are good reasons, there's bad reasons, and, and that sometimes this family needs someone there to advocate for them. Oh, sure, you know? sure. And isn't it wonderful that last year uh, the city of Detroit uh, agreed to appropriate money to provide pro bono legal assistance to tenants mm-hmm. who are are facing eviction because the consequences of being evicted, of being homeless, it's far more than just, you know, the individual apartment you have to move out. Of. It can it can impact families and children. It can impact employment, just the repercussions of losing your housing. And that's why we have to look at this very seriously, uh, 
you know, in situations about, you know, what, what are going to be the consequences of this and to ensure that if people are being taken for granted with a lease provision or the landlord's not making the repairs that they're supposed to do, be doing or if the housing is in violation of the city codes, that those issues are raised. And, I, you know, one thing that I feel very passionately about, the law, it sometimes seems like a very elitist institution to people who aren't lawyers, and I don't think it should have to be that way. I think people should know what their rights are and um, what they can do about things and and to not just feel only if you have you know the financial resources to hire a lawyer that's the only way you're ever going to have your day in court mm-hmm. you know um, one of my past lives I worked with the chaos code neighborhood development corporation and we worked mm-hmm. a lot with uh, Ted Phillips who was the United but is oh, yeah oh and you know and one of the good things about it was even though we did affordable housing, you know, we, we, we worked at doing affordable housing, but sometimes he would be there and he was like, it, it provided a conscience, you know, like, okay, well, you have to do more than just make the rent cheap. You know, people have a right to have this and that. And that kind of work that often like tenants feel, you could see like, oh, well, we just have to go along with whatever. We don't want to get put out. And that worked. That work matters. That really work matters. Oh, it sure, sure does. Ted was my mentor. Ted was one of the attorneys at the Landlord-Tenant Center when I first started. And isn't it amazing that he's still doing this wonderful work 40 years later, still dedicated to the cause? You know, the other thing, Michelle, not only knowing what your rights are, but also knowing what your responsibilities are as a tenant. You know, for many people... They've never had the opportunity. They haven't been on their own. They don't know, you know. They haven't been provided with information and 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 in this in, in terms of hopefully the, the the knowledge and eventually skills on okay, how do I manage a budget? Am I responsible to pay this? What do I do when I run into problems? What and so um, I think it's when I worked for Wayne County Neighborhood Legal Services, we started a project that was called the Homeless Family Rights Project, and we put together a series of trainings. How can people be successful in their housing? You know, what do they need? What are the, what are the tools, what are the resources that they need in order to have a successful tenancy? And I think that's so important, too, because knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. You know, because often you'll find people where, I mean, it's sad to say it can be generations of, uh, you know, where they haven't really had that one foothold. And so, you know, I look at organizations that, that do that and how important it is to help people not only get it to understand that, it, that, you know, there are responsibilities, but you have rights. And I think that that is just like, I, you know, every now and then I'll see something about Ted Phillips and I'm like, darn, he's still hanging in there, you know? <laughs> he is amazing. That, that, you talk about some people burn out or they just move on and stuff. I don't think he's ever Mm-mm. lost passion or his commitment or his dedication uh, to this issue. And um, we are we are very lucky and blessed that you know, have had to have him, you know, still fighting the good fight. Mm-hmm. So when when people who know Jay Kaplan, ACLU lawyer, that's my television. That's going to be your TV show, Jay Kaplan. <laughs> ACL. Okay. When people when people see you on stage 
and they see you or they see something you're going to be in. Do you find that, you know, that they sort of look at like, I know you had that in you, Jay, or are they surprised that you you have this other way to, to you know, how they say you can't pour from an empty cup, but you have this other way to keep your, your cup full, this license work balance. Are they surprised to see you up there on stage? I think sometimes they are. I mean, there's usually a, a, a disconnect between the work, my job that I do. So I more see that when I'm working on a play, uh, doing a show. I usually don't talk about what's going on with work or anything. And then, you know, I might come out in a casual, oh, you do that? You know, because when you work on a play, usually, you know, you're focusing on the play itself or the show you're putting on and you're not, you know, you're not thinking about people's day lives or what they did before they came here. And so, um, yeah, a, a lot of times people are not aware or, you know, that, that, that they, they see either you just in your role of the job that you do or if you're involved with, you know, with the performing arts, they just kind of see you as, as part of the performing arts community. Um, but, um, yeah, I just, I think um, it, once we start talking, though, about everybody having a need to be more than just maybe what they do in their job or more than, you know, what hobbies that they have, then, then it makes sense and there is a more a connection and awareness about that. So you made your directorial debut with A Raisin in the Sun. Where? So actually, actually, Michelle, and um, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I've been communicating. I've been directing plays for about 25 years. So um, Raisin, Raisin was um, not my first show. It was, I don't know how many. I mean, I've been very fortunate they've given me this opportunity. But in many ways, Michelle, this was a really special one, and it felt, I, um, and I feel very strongly about this. We have a lot of community theaters in um, the metro Detroit area, which is great, and they do a lot of wonderful productions. But many times you don't see telling of diverse stories and featuring uh, communities. And so this was very meaningful to me because uh, Birmingham Village Players, which, um, you know, we know the city of Birmingham. I think the perception is that there's probably not a great deal of diversity racially. Did a play that featured mostly, you know, focused on a, a, an African American family and um, was really telling a story, their story. And I was so I was so pleased that, that you know that, that that the theater you know chose to do this show, and I was so happy that it was a positive experience for the actors and hopefully for the audience as well. Now, Lorraine Hansberry. Mm. You know, I mean, come on, I mean, Lorraine Hansberry. But, I mean. She's my hero. I know. And, you know, I, you know, I often talk about the intersections, okay? All right, yeah. Lorraine Hansberry. Okay. Not only was she an African-American woman, she mm -hmm. had an LGBTQ background. I mean, yes. she was tight with James Baldwin. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. And and she she was she was writing for lesbian um, publications under a pseudonym in the 1950s. Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, talk about all of these things. I mean, so here's this woman, and she put on this play that mm -hmm. I mean, she wrote this play that was talking about, you know, 
racism, and some of the things are, are still, you know, relevant today. I mean, so much of it was, but it wasn't like of of the other things that you have directed in life that could, could you like, were you excited to get this play in your hands and, and you're going to do this, especially how and where you did it? Yeah, I was very excited about it. And, you know, I'm not, this is not very original, but there's a well-known African-American director, stage, and Kenny Leon. And he did our revival of Raising the Sun with Denzel Washington. And they interviewed him. And they said, what's your approach about this play? And he said, my goal for all of us is to fall in love again with Lorraine Hansberry's play and her words. And I, I, you know, I was so excited because, of course, I knew Raising the Sun. I read it when I was, I think it was in fifth or sixth grade. I'd seen the movie, and, and it's a very much beloved play. But you're right. It, her ideas and the thoughts, you know, uh, you know obviously we've made great strides in, in terms of the civil rights movement, but we still have economic inequality. We still have segregation, de facto segregation. And I love in the play that the character of Benisa, the, the sister, who Lorraine said she's not allowed herself, she's saying, you know, you're talking about women's rights. Women's rights. She's saying, I don't need to be married to a man to have value. I'm going to be a doctor. And that's my goal right now. And if I find somebody in my life to love and to come, that's great. But I, that's not my goal in life. I'm going to be doing something more. And, wow, this is 1959 when that show first went on. And, um, you know, she had such a uh, tragically short life, dying of cancer at age, what, 34? Mm-hmm. So many, and so much that she wanted to say. And, um, you know, certainly in Raising the Sun, it resonates. And I think there's only two other show, plays that, that she wrote that actually, you know, were produced. And um, it's interesting, if I just got a little quick tangent, her last play was called The Sign in Sidney Brustein's Window. And she wrote it and it was produced while she was dying. And it came under criticism. It, was, it, it took place in Greenwich Village and it involved like a, a political radicals, you know, living in the village in the 1960s. And, and most of the characters were, were white. And so the critics were like, what are you doing writing about this group of people? Why aren't you doing something similar to Raising the Sun? But I think she had so much she wanted to say. And she was part of a civil rights movement. And she was also very part of a very progressive political movement. And she wanted to say about the importance of being committed to cause and not compromising your ideals, you know, necessarily to get ahead. Um, and in that play, she actually featured a gay character. Now, that was 1964, putting an openly gay character on the stage. That's, that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, but that's who she was, just a remarkable woman. And the opportunity to, to be able to direct a play uh, where the actors are speaking her words, because she just has a beautiful way of, of saying what she wants to say. It was, it was an incredible, um, incredible privilege and a and a gift that that was given to me. I know. I mean, you know, I mean, and it had. It, it's just like I can recall, like in the mid '90s, working with James and Grace Boggs, and they were good mm-hmm. friends not only with Ruby D and Ozzy Davis, but also James uh. Lover. And at, at one point in time, um, them as they were talking about, they would come in and talk to young people about the things that they do. 
And I can particularly remember Ruby Dee talking about this film that she had this that she'd been a part of this Raisin in the Sun and there were young people didn't know and they're like, She said, No, you need to go and find this and talking about, you know, here is this woman who died too soon, as they always say, you know, that you know there were things that were kept from her that perhaps she could have been treated, but she died too soon and all the work she had to do. And not only Ruby, but Danny Glover talked about how a lot of his work, his performances, had been about social justice, and that's why he still was committed to it and saw the importance of being up yeah. there on the stage portraying these roles. So, oh, I mean, sure. Mm-hmm. sure. You know, I love entertaining and just fun shows, but I love plays that really have something to say and have an important message. And um, it's just, it's, it's so meaningful. And I'm so glad you mentioned Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee because you're right. They were involved in Raising the Sun, you know, from the get-go. They, you know, mm-hmm. they were big supporters of Lorraine Hansberry. And nobody, no producer on Broadway wanted to touch a play uh, that dealt with mostly black characters or written by, you know, by, by an African-American woman. She was the first African-American woman to have a play of hers on Broadway. And it wasn't until Sidney Poitier agreed to, uh, you know, play the main role, Walter Lee Younger, that they were able to get the backing and to get, um, uh, you know, a theater owner willing to even book that play. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, like, amazing and the, and the history. And I will tell you that that night I was – I was so glad to be the opening night. Not, and I, I mentioned how I sat next to um, the son. What's his name? I can't think. Putting the play. Okay, I sat next to a member of his, oh, his mother. Yeah, and oh. I mean, there were he had his family members there, and there's a, but there's a woman who was sitting further down. And when it was over, she said that was the first time she had ever really seen the play, mm-hmm. she knew about the movie. She never, can you imagine, she, she was an African American. She had not seen the movie. She knew about it. She knew it was all out there, but she was like how glad she wasn't. And she, and she was going on about the different parts that had really moved her. And mm-hmm. like you said, she picked up on the women's movement. She said, and a lot of it, how she remembered being alive back in that time. And it was, and that showed the power Still, not only of theater, but of the words that Lorraine Hamster, and then, you know, putting it all together. Yeah, yeah. What were you most afraid about doing this? You know, because, you know, I know many people go like, oh, you know, this is a black play. Who is he to try to do this? What were you afraid of when you said, I'm going to do this? Mm-hmm. Well, I I kind of was of the thought that um, if this play is done, that the directors should be African-American. And when the theater decided they wanted to put this on, no one in their membership, and there's not a lot of diversity in their membership, um, there was no director of color that was interested. And I spoke to some of my friends um, who are African-American, and I asked them what would they think about this idea of, you know, this white guy directing the show. And they thought, and when they, they said, well, you know, this show needs to be done. 
and this could be the first time and we, we you know we, we we think you could do that you know as a way um of getting more of these stories and stuff on the stage and so that was kind of my motivation and i what i wanted more than anything i wanted the people that were involved with, in this play who were new to this group i wanted them to feel welcome and valued and for hopefully for this to be a very positive experience for for them and then that maybe they would want to do other theater uh, here and we can get more diverse stories and diverse directors involved with, with the community theater. So that was the most important thing to me. I also didn't know, you know, who knows village players who even come to village but how do you how do you get people to come out to audition? You can't just say, Hey, we're doing this play, come and audition. So did a lot of work looking for different groups and organizations that that had actors of color involved and reaching out to individual people and um hoping you know that they might be interested in auditioning and um i was really i was so gratified we had about 40 people come out for auditions and mm-hmm. so demonstrated to me that you know people really liked this play wanted to be part of it and that you know you 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 need to make an effort to reach out to people. Uh, it just doesn't have. It's it's not okay. I'm doing. You know, it's, it's not. You build it and they come. It's it's well. I guess you do build it, but you have to build in a lot of things. And and once again, you have to you have to be a welcoming and um uh well well a welcoming organization. Mhm. And you know, and I think that that was it because everyone who came there. Not only were they coming, you know, I mean, it was a, I drove by, I think I've driven by that place many a time and not recognized it. But right. I think that um, I, there was no like, oh, well, we're going out here. First of all, they came out to support the actors. They came out to support the production. And they all really appreciated it. And I thought, I thought, you know, I knew you were directing it, but it was so authentic. I didn't go like, oh, well, Jay did it. Am I going to see Jay's mark on this? No. What I saw was a production of A Raisin in the Sun, and it was excellent. How do you direct but take yourself out of it? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Let the actors do what the actors do, but still direct. Right. Well, like, you know, I'm no expert director, but I really do believe that Casting a production is probably 90% of the task of a director if you cast it well. And I was so fortunate, um, uh, you know, to get an incredible group of it, you know, of actors in this show who felt very passionately about their play and the roles that they were playing. Um, and I think in a play like this, Raising the Sun, we're – Lorraine Hansberry's words and her characters and the situation speak for themselves. The best thing that a director can do is to give the actors the support they need to do what they have to do, but let the play and their performances speak for themselves. It's you. Right. It's not. I don't think it's a play that you you would do it real stylistically or anything like that. But I was just you know we had some really good conversations about their characters and their motivations. But I have to say I didn't do a lot of suggestions in terms of interpretations or things like that because the people who are in the cast, their instincts 
and their thoughts and their ideas were, you know, in my mind, spot on. And um, even from the first reading of the play, the first time we got together, I remember we're all like looking at each other, like, wow, this, you know, this is going to be good. These people are, they're good. You know, they're good actors, they're good performers. They, they really understand this play and understand the characters that they're playing. So I was very, very fortunate. Well, you know, now you've piqued my interest because I know that you've been doing things. I did not know that you had directed before. Now you know I'm going to be watching now. I, yeah. I'm going to be watching today. But, you know, I never cease to be amazed by the talent we have in the Metro Detroit area. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, we have such great talent. What is yeah. something else that you that you have directed that you – that sort of grabbed you from a different way as this play did. Yeah. Well, I've been so fortunate. You know, um, uh, so Stagecrafters in Royal Oak, they have a, a theater it's called upstairs. It's called Second Stage. And they will do a lot of um, newer plays, more cutting-edge shows. And so I have been very fortunate to have directed a number of plays for instance, I did the Laramie Project, which was about Matthew Shepard, and it oh, was yeah. an interview with the town, with members of, um, of you know, of Wyoming, talking about reflecting on uh, what happened to Matthew Shepard. I did um, got to direct a musical about five years ago called Southern Comfort. I don't know if you're familiar, Michelle. It was a documentary. It's about a transgender man and his and his friends, his chosen family, and they made a musical out of it. And so we we did that show, and um, we were able to cast um, members of the trans community in, in some of the parts uh, for, for that show, and that was very meaningful. Did another play um, called Casa Valentina. It's written by um, Harvey Firestein, and it was about this resort in the Catskills in the late 50s and early 60s where you had men, many who were heterosexual, who were considered to be cross-dressers and, you know, about their lives and the impact on their families, you know, sometimes married, uh, you know, the fact that um, they would get away for the weekend and they would present themselves as female. And it was really actually a very funny but interesting play, had the opportunity to do that. So I, when, I, when, when I've been able to direct shows, what really gets my passion are the ideas or what does, what does what does the show or the play or the musical what are they trying to what are they trying to say what's the message here and that that really motivates and, and stimulates me mhm yeah you know because i mean it's something about like you might not even think something but then as you watch and it peels back the layers you go like you walk away and that's what you go like hmm you know <laughs> yeah, yeah i didn't think about that wow i'm right. sorry so it sounds like, though, interestingly enough, uh, there is an intersection between the work that you do and some of the productions you've been involved in. Sure, you know? sure. Yep. Yeah. I, I love, you know, I, I have a love for plays about the underdog, uh, you know, people who might not get the recognition or the fairness that they deserve. And, of course, what motivates me in terms of the work, being able to be part of the social justice movement, that, that's really important to me. And so, um, yeah, uh, 
plays that say, take a look at these, look at these people and, 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 and get to know who they are and to understand that often prejudice and discrimination is based on fear and ignorance and, um, and it's wrong. And uh, I think that's part of, you know, part of the civil rights movement too. I mean, some of the progress that we've made on LGBTQ rights, certainly with marriage equality, was the result of changing hearts and minds. More and more people who said, oh, I know somebody who's gay or lesbian, you know, might be a family member or a neighbor or a friend or a work colleague. And, you know, I don't, you know, that really isn't fair that their relationship can't be recognized at law and that they, their families can't have the same legal protections that, that I may have. And so I, once again, I think art can help can, can help fuel and can mm-hmm. can help support uh, civil rights movements. Yeah, I think too, like the arts, I mean, it, it gives a way, it opens the door for sometimes difficult conversations that wouldn't happen. But like you said, it changes the hearts and minds so that it isn't like a confrontation. It's not you or me. It's like, hey, did you see that movie? Did you read that book? Did you do that? And it makes you think. And I think, like, you know, without the arts, you know, we just be, you know, the arts help us along this march towards equality. You know, you have to have it. I know I can recall, um, remember at an ACLU dinner when Harry Belfonte was there. And it was Uh, like, I have been places and people who had talked about the work that he did, mm -hmm. and they know him more more about that. Mm-hmm. you know, than anything else, you know, like how the work that he did and how he helped civil rights. And there's so many people, you know, that mm-hmm. that have done that, you know. Well, to, to be able to use your position to, you know, to make statements. And you mentioned all these people, Ruby D, Ozzie Davis, James Baldwin, Harry Belafonte, Danny Glover. Danny Glover was also a speaker at one of the ACLU dinners, too. Um <laughs> One year we had Martin Sheen, you know, all of them, you know, using their position, well-known people, to to also make a statement, you know, about social justice, about civil liberties. And, um, uh, you know, I think they've all recognized that they've, they've been given a platform where, where they could make a positive difference. And, um, you know, what an incredible, you know, just looking at Harry Belafonte, what an incredible career he had, you know, in terms of, uh, music that he that he that he he did, but also all the work he did. You know, you look at anything with the, the history of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, and he was always there, always there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's one of the things that I think was so cool. I mean, and also, you know, Detroit has that social justice right right here. I mean, we've been the heart of so many movements and changes. And, I mean, you know, that's the thing, because I can remember uh, going to the Boggs' house, and I think that, that was before Jimmy died. I think it was the year that he did die. And I'm sitting mm-hmm. there talking to him, and he said, I remember when Malcolm was sitting right in that chair right there, and I sort of jumped up and looked at that chair and said, Malcolm X? He said, yes. And then later on to read in history books, like, yeah, these people had come through. Yeah, yeah. Well, yep, yep. And, you know, I think Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech was first broken. Oh, and and, and uh, 
we have a picture in the ACLU office of that civil rights march from 1963, the one that was in Detroit. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just remarkable to, to, to think of, you know, and certainly with, you know, labor unions being part and being supporters of the civil rights movement um, in the 1960s, all that very, very rich history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in some ways, you couldn't help but be the person that you are, you know? <laughs> you know, you, you are, it's like you are right, right in the middle of all of these and you're like baptized in all of these to be the person that you are. Um, uh, well, what are you doing? So, I am so grateful, Michelle, to have had this, these opportunities. I mean, I, I'm not over with my career, but sometimes I look back and I, I, I the lucky always comes comes to mind just to be able, you know, before the ACLU, I was able to work for, um, it was then called Michigan Protection and Advocacy Service, and we put together the first HIV AIDS legal services program for people living with HIV and AIDS, at, you know, at the height of the, of the epidemic. And just so many great opportunities I've been given, and, and to be able to work with so many wonderful people like yourself and, um, and, um, you know, to be part of this community. I, I never take it for granted. I know. I mean, sometimes, you know, you might have a moment, but then you look around and you go like, wow, the incredible people that that live here that have touched so many. I mean, I have met young people who, and who are not so young now, but I have met people who said that they came to this city. And yeah. at the time when we were doing things, and I met a young lady who said that, coming here and seeing what we were involved in, and that was like right about the Prop 2 time. And she said, now she's in D.C., she said it changed the trajectory of her life. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, really. Wow. And look at at the heroes within the LGBT community that we've had just in the Detroit. Ruth Ellis, um, Jeff Montgomery, Dan and Susan, Charles Alexander. I mean, you know... I, uh, I mean, you stop and you look, at, and, and it's still growing, and it's still going on, and you know, to where that we know that Ruth Ellis wasn't just a name on a building. She was a real person. You know, Charles Alexander, the, the mark that he has had not only on our community, but on art. I mean, you know, it's just like amazing. Yeah, yeah, Listen, yeah. You know, that's what I tell people, say like, well, but, you know, I said, you know, there's a way that we are rich because of having done that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, someone like Tim Retzloff, who who Mm -hmm. is kind of a historian of the LGBTQ community, to to make sure that we get these stories and that we know our history. It's so important. I mean, let's face it, we lost a generation of, of the gay community to HIV and AIDS. And, um, and, I I don't I I think it's I think it's great where we well I, it is great where we are in terms of that this is no longer a death sentence and that people can live healthy lives uh, all the wonderful progress that is being made and and if young people hadn't lived through that they shouldn't have to live through that but it's but it's important that we that we um, have an understanding of our history where we came from and um, because I think that only that only provides greater motivation to continue making progress, um, you know, on behalf of our community. Well, Jay, what's next for you? Um, 
<laughs> the ACLU and theatrically. Yeah, well, I hope the ACLU will continue to keep me. <laughs> uh, still, they better. I hope so. I, I, listen, I'm like I said, I'm so honored, and um, uh, I yeah, I see there's still a lot more work we have to do. We have to fight these book bans and and these attacks on LGBTQ uh, youth in in schools. And as far as theatrical things, um, I'm always. You know, I love to read plays. I love to read, period. But I'm always reading new plays. And, um, you know, I hope to be involved in another theatrical endeavor. I'm really on a mission. However I can support it, I really want to see more diversity in our local community theaters with stories and actors and directors and crew members. And I'm, you know, I see my role, the role that I like to play, is doing anything I can to support that. Mm. Oh, great. Well, Jay, you know, I still have my one-woman play in mind. <laughs> yes, yes, so, Michelle. We can, we, let's do it. You know, and so we'll have to sit down and talk about it, you know. I mean, sometimes I see different visions of it of it in my head. But, you know, um, I appreciate you. I value you as a friend, a, as a comrade in arms. There's been so many things that we have, battles that we have done to build to where we are now and to continue to build towards a better future for every child that's born, you know, every child that's born because we come as we are, you know, we might be LGBTQ or whatever else, and we want that better world. Jay, thank you for taking the time to talk to me tonight. Michelle, thank you so much. I'm back at you on those kind words that you said. I feel the same way about you. And thank you for, for inviting me to be part of this. And this this was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. I want to thank my guest, Jay Kaplan. Jay is a staff attorney for the ACLU of Michigan's LGBTQ plus project. He's also an actor and director. We'll be back next week with more interviews of individuals living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. You can support Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio by following us on Facebook, X, formerly Twitter, and Instagram, and becoming a monthly supporter through Patreon.com or our GoFundMe page. Current and past episodes of the show can be heard on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Stay tuned as we continue to introduce you to more amazing individuals living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.